You'll recall that we've been looking at the life of Samuel, some of the episodes around his birth and his childhood. And uh, last time Jeremy looked at his ministry in, in the seventh chapter, the way Samuel's leadership uh, results in a kind of revival among God's people in the nation. And we've been looking at him as part of a broader series on the Nazarites in Scripture, these unique individuals who devoted to God in extraordinary ways and the way that God uses them. Now we move forward many decades. Um, the, the writer skips over so much of the detail of Samuel's life and moves towards the very other end of his life into old age here. I'm going to read what's taking place as he grows old. First Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. There is a lot going on in this chapter, and uh, it's a chapter that has a very unique significance in the storyline of Scripture because it leads to this pivotal change in the life of the nation from an era in which 
They were ruled by judges, appointed by God, raised up by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the way in which they had to depend on God, generation on generation for that, to a, seat, to a new era, really, for Israel when kings were, were anointed and appointed. And so there's an enormous significance to this. Of course, Jesus comes from the line of kings and how that emerges really from this point, this turning point in the history of the nation. And of course, there's so much we could draw out here to do with those themes, to do with leadership, um, to do with so much that's going on in this chapter. But remember that our interest has been specifically with a focus upon these Nazarites and on the way in which they're devoted to God. And it's through that lens that I want to approach this passage. I'm interested particularly in what God has done in Samuel and how this event touches his life and the way in which Samuel is differentiated from the people. That's what we're interested in today. Now, I think you, if you think, cast your mind back to the things that we've been looking at, one thing you'll notice is that when we've begun exploring these stories of these unique individuals, powerfully, singularly, passionately devoted to God, that their devotion to God is connected with leadership among God's people. That in some ways, the two things seem to go together. That as God singles an individual out and anoints them with his spirit and with his power and takes their heart and calls them to full devotion, he also then, along with that, entrusts them in a position of leadership. And the stories of Nazarites that we have in Scripture substantiate that. You have Samson and his place as a judge. You have Samuel and his place as a judge. And then finally we have John the Baptist, who we'll look at in, in, uh, shortly, and his unique place as a leader among the people, preparing the way of Christ. So leadership and passion for God are linked. And uh, that's something that I think is worth fixing in your mind and in your thoughts. I remember years ago, uh, when before memes were memes, before everyone had even come up with that term, there was a viral video that went around on the internet for a little while, about, uh, which just was a recording of a man on the side of a hill. There were many people on the side of a hill looked like they were having a picnic. And clearly, at the bottom of the hill, there was some kind of music festival going off camera. And this music, this thumping beat starts playing, and the music's playing. And just this one man stands up in the crowd, and he starts, he starts dancing. Oh, I don't normally dance like this. I'm trying to do an impression, because it was it's quite <laughs> terrible dancing. But he's really getting into it. And the more he gets into it, over time, you see what happens. Initially, just one person joins him and stands next to him and starts dancing with him. Then two, three, ten. Then there's 50, and then there's about 300 people dancing alongside him. And it's a vision of leadership. At least that was the kind of caption that went with the video, that um, he's, he's, he's a bit weird, he's a bit nutty, but he's different, and people are drawn to that. And there's something about the passion that can live in your heart that can single you out for leadership. Leaders, people who are devoted to God, require a certain bravery, requires a, a single-minded devotion and love. And that is something that people can be drawn to powerfully, so devotion to God and leadership are connected. But here is another side that we're seeing in the story. That just as leadership belongs with devotion, so can rejection. Samuel has had an uneventful, successful adult life as a leader in the nation. And I know that because it passes almost without comment. You look at the end of the last chapter, 
Jeremy unpacked chapter 7. It was really a, a kind of revival that takes place early in Samuel's life as a young leader. And then the, the decades are summed up in just three verses at the end of that chapter. It says from verse 15 that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. In those three verses are captured decades of uneventful, successful leadership, because nothing's happening because the people are loving God, they're being led by Samuel, he's doing a great job. There's not really much to tell beyond that. Now everything changes. The beginning of this eighth chapter, he's an old man. His powers are fading. His judgment is fading. And in his old age, he unwisely allows his sons to act in his stead as judges. And they're corrupt men. They're taking bribes. They're perverting justice. And that's how the beginning of chapter 8 opens. And as Samuel's godly leadership on the, na- on the nation that's kind of held the people in place, held them in faithfulness to God, in covenant obedience to God, as his strength weakens, as he begins to diminish and to fade... A gap emerges between Samuel on the one hand and the direction of the nation, the people, the population on the other hand. A gap is beginning to emerge. And that's what I'm interested in. And the gap, I think, you can describe it as a kind of rejection. Firstly, that Samuel experiences, but really a rejection of God. Now, I I want you to understand this. It is so important for our study in this series because on the one hand, I could ask you the question, if you are someone who longs to devote your life to God entirely, are you ready for leadership that accompanies that? When your heart, your life, your obedience, everything in you is offered to God entirely, are you ready for leadership, because God will use you. But the other question that comes with that is this. If you belong entirely to God, are you also ready for rejection? Now, in my reading of Scripture, these two things seem to come together. You take any leader, you understand how they seek to honor God and please Him with their lives, you'll discover that there's appeal The people are drawn to that, but they're also rejected. It's true of Moses. It's true of David. It's true of Paul in the New Testament. It's true supremely of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true here of Samuel. Why? Because when your life is devoted to God, you become his representative. And that is attractive to some for some of the time. But it also becomes repulsive to people, especially when people want to turn their backs on God or ignore him or block him out. So devotion to God means that you can end up standing alone. And that's what's happening here in Samuel's old age. It's a sad end, really, to a successful life. And I want to ask the question with you, why? Why does devotion to God often mean standing alone? We'll just look at this in terms of what's going on here in this passage. Firstly, let's look at our Nazarite, at Samuel. How does he end up standing alone? Now, upon your first reading of this passage, it actually doesn't look that way, does it? 
It doesn't look like he's being isolated and that the gap is emerging between him and the people. You see, they approach him with a legitimate complaint. They come to him and say that you're old. It's blunt, but it's true. And sometimes old men in leadership need to hear this being told to them. They say, behold, you are old. And then they say, and your sons do not walk in your ways. These are accurate observations. They have a point. And not only that, but they also come with a legitimate request because then they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, you may not know this, but hundreds of years earlier in the book of, in the book of Deuteronomy, it had been written that there would come this time in the life of the nation. And it was actually allowed. God allowed. He made allowance for the people to desire and request that a king be appointed over them. And this is how it says it in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So perhaps they were aware of this, I don't know. But on the face of it, there's a legitimacy to what's taking place here. Their complaint is legitimate. The request seems at first to be legitimate. So you can't see a gap necessarily emerging between Samuel and between the people. But the more you understand what's going on here, you can begin to observe this deep, deep rift that's taking place here. How is that happening? Well, Samuel seems to know something about what's going on in their hearts. I think he has a kind of prophetic intuition, actually, because he is a prophet, remember. And he knows that even if on the surface their request seems legitimate, something is wrong here. And you can see it in the next verse, in verse 6. It says, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now, undoubtedly, part of it perhaps is just his own human sense of being rejected, any leader who's approached and told that you're old and we want the next leader is going to feel a smarting wound on account of that. But there's more going on here. Samuel knows something is amiss, not necessarily in the request, but in the heart behind the request. A gap is, is beginning to emerge between him and the people. And so he prays. And you see it clearly in the way God answers him in verse 7. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Of course, in one sense, they had rejected Samuel, but indirectly, because really what God is saying is, their problem isn't with you, Samuel. Their problem is with me. They are actively resisting me. They don't want me to rule them and lead them anymore. So Samuel's prophetic intuition is proved true at this point. He knows that there's a sickness that has gripped the people, a spiritual sickness, and a gap has emerged between this man, Samuel, and between the people, the population, the nation as a whole. They're pulling away from God. And God confirms it in the next thing he says to Samuel in verse Eight, where he says that according to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. In other words, this people have a habit of falling away, of displacing my rule with other rulers. He says, and so they are also doing to you. So it's come under your leadership again, the same cycle, the same habit, the same thing is repeating itself here. 
They're turning away from me. Now, look at Samuel. Samuel's a man, remember, from his conception has been dedicated and devoted to God. And even though he's made mistakes in his old age by appointing his sons as leaders, his heart belongs to God. And you can see that he's faithful to God. You can see it in the simplest acts of devotion that he displays here in three things. One, that he continues to pray, feeling displeased with the way that this request has come to him, we're told that what he does is he prays. It says, Samuel prayed to the Lord. I think it's one of the first signs of spiritual sickness is when people stop praying. And it's clear that the nation aren't praying, they're planning. I'm not saying that planning and praying can't belong together. Remember Oliver Cromwell said, trust God and keep your powder dry, your gunpowder. In other words, you trust him, you pray on him, you depend on him, but you also are ready for action. Praying and planning can belong together, but that's not what's going on here. These people are planning, they're not praying. And you can see this gap emerge. Samuel prays. It's the simplest, most basic, most fundamental way of demonstrating that your heart is for God and you're trusting in him, your prayer life. It says everything about you. Not only does he pray, but he also listens. God begins to speak to him. Now, I think that our human judgment is corrupted and faulty and tends to go wrong, tends to go awry. But it goes awry when we stop listening to God by his word, the scriptures, and by his spirit, the, the prophetic way in which God applies his word to our lives even now in this moment. When you find yourself closing your ears to God's voice, not reading the scriptures or studying them, not listening to things that are being taught to you, resisting the voice of God's spirit in, in your conscience, in your mind, in, in your heart. When you begin to close your ears, the Bible equates that to disobedience. Listening and obedience belong together. They're practically the same thing in Scripture. You stop listening, then you're beginning to disobey. So you can see this rift emerging. Samuel's praying, they're not praying. Samuel's listening to God, they're not listening to God. And Samuel is speaking for God. God tells him, tell the people, he says, obey them, appoint a king, but tell them the consequences of this decision. And so he relays this, this powerful, terrifying, prophetic um, kind of prediction of what will take place when they appoint a king over them, how this king will take, 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 take from them. But in their stupidity, they still want him. I mean, it reminds you so much of the kind of populism of the modern world and its democracies, doesn't it? How we elect leaders who are so evidently narcissistic and selfish and only interested in selfish gain, and yet we appoint them because we, we love glory. We love to adulate such idiots and put them in positions of power, even though they're clearly and demonstrably not servants of the people but of themselves. And Samuel delivers a hard message. He speaks the truth. He's a truth teller. Jesus said... In the Gospels, in, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, that this simple devotion to God that results in you living for him and speaking the truth for him will inevitably mean that you experience rejection in life. Do you remember this one in Matthew 5 where it says, Blessed are you 
when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you stay faithful to God like Samuel does, praying, listening, and being willing to speak truth, live it out, inevitably that will distinguish you from others. It will pull you away from others in a way that a rift, a gap emerges, and you'll experience the kind of rejection that Samuel experiences. This is why it's happening. It's a simple faithfulness to God. And it isolates him from the people. He's standing alone. I want you to feel the force of that, friends. Many Christians don't live faithful lives because they don't want to be isolated. They don't want to be different. Many Christians hesitate to obey God because they think it will make them look strange. They're cautious about wearing their faith in a genuine and authentic way because they're afraid of appearing different and being judged as different. My challenge over these weeks has been the call to this kind of singular devotion that these Nazarites show. And friend, you may be drawn to that. There may be a romantic appeal to the notion of becoming somebody who is wholly dedicated to God. But listen to me. You go on that path. People will misunderstand you and sometimes even hate you. That's our Nazarite. Now, I want to look at the contrasting image of the people, the crowd, so to speak. How and why are they falling away from God? What is really going on here? I think we need to understand the nature of their sin. Because it isn't actually that obvious when you first read the passage. They're not, first of all, they're not involved in gross immorality. There had been times in their history when they had been doing terrible, terrible things as a people. You know, Moses is up the mountain receiving the law from God, and they're at the base of the mountain involved in a massive orgy. Nothing like that's going on here. There isn't that kind of gross immorality. There isn't actually obvious idolatry either. Now, people often made altars and, and worshipped false gods, but that, I can't see that happening here in this chapter, not explicitly and not obviously. So it's not even clear, is it, what their sin is. We also saw how they're not entirely wrong by pointing out the problems. Samuel's old, his sons are corrupt, a solution is needed here, and they're not wrong on that. Nor are they necessarily wrong about desiring a king. God had made allowance for it, I already explained that to you. So in what way are they sinning here? What is actually going wrong? What is the sickness, the spiritual sickness that's set in among the population in distinction from Samuel? And I think the answer is is something like this. That they are abandoning a living faith and dependence and trust in God and embracing dead, godless religion. They're abandoning a living faith in God and they're embracing dead and godless religion. That's what, Jesus, that's what God says here, essentially, in verse 7 when he says to Samuel, they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Godless religion. Now let me just define that a little bit more carefully for you. 
I think you can, there are various phrases that capture, I think, what's going on here. One of them is to describe this as their desire for the kingdom without the king. They want to be part of the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, but they don't want the kingship of Yahweh over their lives. It's what we, it's, we often describe these days as religion without the relationship. Involved in the structures and the habits and the patterns of faith, but without a living and vital dynamic relationship with the living God at a personal level in obedience and trust. It's what some people would describe as spirituality, I suppose, but without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. There's different ways you can describe it. The kingdom without the king, religion without relationship, spirituality without the spirit. In other words, they want to keep their identity. We're Israel. They want to keep the practices of their faith. They want to keep the relationships they have with one another as a community of faith. They want to keep their morality even, and perhaps even want to keep the actions of their worship. Tabernacles, the feasting and the festivals and all those kinds of things. But they want to lose the real, authentic, living, dynamic relationship of trust with the living God that defined them as his people. And friends, this is not an uncommon reality. Just recently, we had dinner with a friend who is not a believer, uh, but he grew up like me as a, a son of a, a minister. Only his story is very different from mine. Whereas my father was consistently God-centered in public and in private, he said that his father, a vicar in the Anglican Church, was a minister over five parishes, so he circulated between different parishes, and ministered to the community in whatever ways that that involves as an Anglican vicar. And he says, I cannot tell you if my father actually believed in God. He never talked about it. So in other words, this, this man was doing the work of a minister, leading services of worship, conducting funerals and weddings and visiting people in their sickness and all these kinds of things. But his own son could not hand on heart say that his dad was a believer. And the thing that's terrifying about that is that it's incredibly common. Not just among ministers, of course, though I think they're largely to blame for these problems and these realities, but even among ordinary Christians. And so for them, in their day, what that meant was that God wanted and had taught them and trained them as his people to experience a living, dynamic relationship with him of dependence. Remember, Jeremy referenced manna at the beginning of the service, and that's a wonderful image of what God wanted to teach his people. When God gave them manna in the wilderness, remember, he never allowed them to gather more manna than just enough for that present day, except on a Friday when they could gather enough for the Sabbath. And if they gathered too much manna, it would rot in their jars. Why? Because God wanted to teach them that they had to have a living relationship with him. They couldn't store up for the future. Every day they needed to depend on him in dynamic, living, active faith and dependence. Prayer, trusting in him, seeking him. So we taught them that in the most visible way possible, the manner. 
course, Christ then says to us, I'm the bread of life. You can't trust in some experience that took place decades ago, perhaps, in your, or even years, even weeks ago, even yesterday, when you discovered Christ and gave your life to him. You can't rely upon that. He says, I want to be your manna every day. Isn't that how he taught us to pray in Matthew 6? Give us today our daily bread. I don't think that that's primarily about physical provision. I think that line in that prayer is primarily about having a living relationship of satisfying heart fullness in Christ every single day. Not remembering some experience that happened to you once upon a time. And that's what God wanted of Israel. And this is why he hadn't given them a king. This is why he, he appointed judges and did so by the sovereign work of his spirit. Because he wanted them to constantly turn to him and look to him. And that's what they were supposed to do in this moment. As Samuel is getting old, and he really needs to move into retirement. They ought to have been on their knees begging God for a new leader. One that God had raised up. But instead, they want to control things. They want to turn things into institutionalized things. They want to bring human ingenuity and planning and structure to their experience of faith. And they actually don't need God for any of that. And effectively, it's a kind of worldliness that creeps into their minds. Even after Samuel warns them about what the king will be like and what he will do, do you hear how they answer him? They say no. It's at the end of the chapter. No, they say, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, instead of looking up to God, they're looking around and they just want to be like all the nations. It's the kind of worldliness that's crept into their thinking. They're thinking, well, if those people are doing okay and those people are doing okay, then we can build the same kind of thing. We don't need God for this. And friend, This fall from grace, this fall away from a living relationship with God, I think it's the most subtle, the most subtle and difficult kind of sin and dangerous to identify. It's, It's difficult to identify and it's dangerous for a few reasons. One is because of its subtlety. On the surface of things, they look like God's authentic people. Everything looks okay. But they lack the one thing necessary that distinguishes a child of God, and that's faith. You can't see it, can you, when you just glance at the passage? But they lack the one thing necessary, a living faith. It's dangerous because this fall can happen so gradually, almost unnoticeably. Think of that experience you have when you run in a lovely hot bath and you lie down in the bath for a while. And over time, barely even noticing it, it grows cold. And you'd never stepped into a cold bath to begin with, but you're in it now. And suddenly you realize how gradually that takes place, just incrementally. And this is something like what's been going on with the people. Samuel's leadership has perhaps held them in faithfulness to God and dependence upon him. But the minute that Samuel begins to fade away, There's a gradual moving away from a living relationship with God. It's gradual. It's not obvious. It's not clear. But you look at where they are now from where they were decades before when they dedicated themselves to God. Something very drastic has happened over that time. 
It's subtle, it's gradual. Another reason why this is so dangerous is because it happens collectively. It happens to them as a people. So if you're taking your temperature or measuring your pulse against what other people are like, you might think you're okay. They look around them, everybody's of the same mind and of the same heart. But that's because everybody has drifted away from God. And Samuel is in isolation as the one who stands out. And he's so isolated, he looks weird and radical and eccentric. And that's what happens when God's people fall away from him. Real faith begins to look bizarre. It looks unattractive in some ways. It looks, it looks unreasonable. Because the reasonable faith doesn't act like that. What does all this look like in our day? I think it looks like our efforts to just apply, to just be reasonable in our, in our walk with God. So read the Bible, of course, but don't take it too seriously. It's good to be generous. It's good to give. You know, it's good to give to charities, maybe give a little bit to your church, but don't give away too much. You don't want to risk your pension or saving up for your kids or whatever it is that you want to do with your money. Pray, because it's good for your mental health to pray. Did you know that? But we're not actually expecting God to do anything when we pray. It's just, it's good for you. Let's try to, try to be good, try and live a good life, but you, know, you don't need to be too extreme about this. You still get to do the things you want to do. Go to church, by all means. But don't let religion take over your life. And I ask you the question, you can see, can't you, how this, this, this shift happens so subtly, so gradually. I ask you the question, can a living faith ever really be reasonable by worldly standards? The people, their requests look so reasonable, so rational. But a catastrophe has happened in their hearts spiritually. It's been hollowed out. It's empty. It's a shell of religion. Because the one thing necessary that defines an authentic relationship with God, which is active trust in him, daily trust in him, that is the thing that's missing. And when it's present, you become a radical by definition. You become bizarre, weird, by worldly standards. So I want to close and just ask you the question, which way will you choose, friend? There is a kind of religion that requires no trust in God. It looks genuine and devout. But really, it's dead. Because there is no active dependence upon God in day-to-day life. That is the sickness that's set in here. It's the kingdom without the king. But on the other hand, this Nazarite faith, this living faith which Samuel embodies, in which I'm wanting to provoke and awaken in all of us as we teach through this series, that living faith will make you different. It will make you stand alone, stand apart, stand in isolation, experience rejection, because it will make you look extreme. It will make you look eccentric. It will make you look radical. Why? Because you pray like God is real. 
Because you listen to what he says to you in the scriptures and by the power of the Spirit, and you take him at his word and you do what he asks and requires of you. You don't reason it and rationalize it away. You don't make excuses anymore. Because you're willing to speak truth to your own soul primarily, but then also to those around you. The consequences of that kind of true devotion, the devotion which Samuel himself embodies, are always extreme. It's the kind of repentance which Jesus described. The cutting off your hand, the gouging out of your eye. This is not gentle, reasonable faith. It's radical and it's extreme. There's an intensity to it because you're at war with your own flesh. The sacrificial generosity... You're not trying to play it safe. You actually want to be to give until it hurts. There's risky obedience. You're willing to, to do what God tells you to do. And there's a humble courage. This is what it means, friends. And listen, I, I want to tell you this isn't some strange version of Christianity. This is the only version of Christianity. And I put it to you like that because think about what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means entrusting your your life into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that his death on the cross is enough to atone for your sins and his resurrection guarantees you a life that is eternal. In other words, to be a Christian is to trust him for the biggest things the most important things, the forgiveness of your sin, the eternal security of your future with God, the things that, have, that eclipse every other decision in life. So if that is what being a Christian means, then doesn't it make sense, friends, that we need to trust him in the small things as well, the day-to-day things. And that's what Samuel's so grieved about, that the people don't know how to do that anymore. Is your faith alive, brother, sister? Is it alive or is it dead? Is your faith genuine and substantial or is it hollow? Is Jesus king of your life? So that if we look at you, we can see that you are actively walking with him, listening to him, obeying him. Those things do, by definition, make you an eccentric in this world and will sometimes mean that you stand alone in your passion for God as Christ Christ did and as Samuel did here in this story. 